uh, eat a snack between the services and wanted to make sure you did not hear me crunching on my <laughs> snack in the lobby. Our scripture for today is going to be in 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if not, you can look on the screen up above. So 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And this is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. Uh, so last week we wrapped up our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now we're starting the book of 2 Timothy. So if you're newish here, we do believe that these are God's good words to us. And so our usual practice is to work through various passages of Scripture when we gather on Sunday mornings. Now on the one hand, uh, this is a really hard gear shift from Ecclesiastes to 2 Timothy. This is like going straight from second gear to fifth gear. Um, they're very, very different books. One was Hebrew wisdom literature in the Old Testament before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the other is a piece of personal correspondence. It's a letter in the New Testament. But there's a bit of a method to the madness in the books that we select. Uh, first of all, we just haven't preached through these books before, so we thought we should. Uh, but also, all the books we've looked at this year, Genesis, Ecclesiastes, and now 2 Timothy, they all help us accomplish an annual focus that we set for our church back at the beginning of the year, which was this. We want to see each person attached to Northwake take one next step into God's disciple-making plan for the world by exploring what it means to live as created beings, as faithful Christians, and as a local church in particular. So in Genesis and Ecclesiastes, we've explored what does it mean to live as a created being. You might think that's like super obvious, but there's a lot to it. To be created means that we were loved by God, we were created by Him, we were made to be like Him in some ways, but we are not God. We are limited, 
we're finite, we are fallen, we're broken, we're mortal. And having that humility must shape the way that we live. We all have expiration dates. We have limitations. And so we have to live realizing that we're not at the center of the universe. This story is not our story. We're not the main character in it. So we want to live in step with what God is up to in this brief life that we have. That's part of what those books helped accomplish in us. So now the book of 2 Timothy will make more clear to us in a way that even Genesis and Ecclesiastes couldn't, what is God up to in the world? And how do we take a next step in living in line with that? Now, interestingly, both 2 Timothy and Ecclesiastes were written by aged wise men, in some ways giving their last will and testament to those who would follow after, their last word on life. Last words are important words, you know. Last words on the lips of your loved ones you, you never forget. They carry weight. They leave an impact. Uh, the state of Texas actually maintains a digital archive of all the final words of every inmate on death row going back to 1976, which represents about 534 prisoners. And the most common word used by the majority of inmates, there's a study, you know, someone did an analysis on all these last words, the most common word was love. Many of these inmates expressed love for their families just before their death. Many also expressed love and sorrow for the family of the victims, of their victims. But their last words, with their last words, most inmates wanted to express love. In 2 Timothy, the great apostle Paul is on death row in a Roman prison, and he's writing a letter to express his deep love for his dear friend. Paul's been arrested for being a Christian missionary and was perhaps, uh, if tradition holds, uh, detained in the Mamertine prison in Rome, which is exactly what you would think of when you think of like an ancient Roman dungeon. It was dark, damp, with a single hole in the ceiling to let in some air and, and some light. You can see it even today. And in this moment, the future of the church was really bleak. Uh, the emperor Nero was having Christians arrested, uh, throwing them to lions in the Colosseum, or burning them alive as torches at some of his dinner parties. And Christianity's most capable leaders and missionaries had either been detained or killed altogether. Paul, Peter, James. False teachers were coming in to new churches and distorting Christian beliefs. Churches had problems with hypocrisy and bringing their lifestyles in line with the Christian faith. So from a certain perspective, things did not look promising for the Christian church in these days, 60, 65 AD. But especially if you're someone like Timothy, who will be a leader in the next generation of this movement after Paul is gone. There would have been enormous pressure for him to walk away from Christianity during this time. There is no social benefit to being a Christian, really only social cost, social sacrifice, maybe even physical sacrifice to be a Christian. Things would have just been so much easier for him to leave it all behind. It was an embarrassment and a dangerous embarrassment at that. Now, the Christian church in America today might not be quite that, quite there, but I do wonder if you've ever felt this way. I know a lot of people in my generation and younger have realized that we are well on our way to being a social religious minority. I don't know how well you can see these statistics up on the screen, but the orange bar is Protestant Christianity over the last five generations, and you can see how the bar has shrunk continuously 
over the course of several generations. And then the yellow bar uh, is people that don't believe anything in particular. The green bar would be if you're atheist or agnostic, you're unsure. Uh, those bars have grown significantly over the last five generations. So the social cost of being a Christian is going to become higher. And to be fair, the church is not known to many people for its kindness and gentleness in our culture, and in some ways, that's a shot totally deserved. But even aside from that, just holding to basic Christian beliefs and basic Christian ethical views can certainly earn you some strange looks and possibly get you dubbed as a hater these days. Plus, does Christianity really seem all that fun? You know, It's becoming more socially embarrassing to be a Christian. And we've all got you know, some stuff like this that we're kind of sheepish about other people knowing about us. Uh, for you, maybe that's where you're from, you know, especially when you travel up north and you meet people, you kind of you get a little reaction from people. They say, oh, where are you from? And you're like, yeah, Mississippi. And you're like, oh, okay. See, I'm from Georgia, which is totally different, obviously. Um, you know, our sports teams that aren't doing so hot these days, it's like, oh, do you pull, you know, you like college football, and you're like, yeah, I'm an Auburn, Auburn Tigers fan, you know. Uh, or if you, you know, hey, what school did you go to, Rob? And you're like, yeah, I was homeschooled. And it's like, oh, okay, okay, you know. And it's easy these days for our faith to become kind of one of those things, one of those things that we're honestly just a little ashamed of. So both then and now, there were quite a few reasons on the surface to be ashamed of our faith and maybe just walk away from it altogether. But in this book and in this passage in particular, Paul will give Timothy and us three reasons why you shouldn't be ashamed of the Christian faith. And here's his three reasons. One, remember our history. Two, remember our message. And three, remember our mission. So remember our history, remember our message, and remember our mission. First, remember our history. And here, there's kind of, you could break this down into three levels of history that Paul seems to bring out to Timothy. And they each get more personal. The first is just a big picture history of his faith. You see this in the very first uh, verse of the book and also in verse three. So if you look in verse one, Paul reminds Timothy and whoever else might read the letter that he is an apostle or an authoritative witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So Paul believes that his faith was not, contrary to what people may have thought at the time, was not a novel religion on the world scene. But it was the culmination of a very long story of life that was lost to us and is now promised again in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, Paul brings this out even further when he tells Timothy that he serves the same God as his ancestors. This would be Isaiah or David or Isaac or Abraham. He's saying Christianity is not a newcomer on the world scene. The Christian faith is not a Western Hemisphere American white man's religion. It is the continuation of a very, very old story that started in the birthplace of human civilization. It's continued through the centuries. This is not some secret cult, you know? So like what year is it right now? I know this gets harder as you get older. You're like, I actually last year went really fast. So it might be 22, but no, it's 2023. Whether you call that CE, Common Era, or AD, Anno Domini, it doesn't really matter. We date our entire modern calendar around the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that proves the truth of Christianity. I'm just saying that something happened in history that left a permanent mark on our whole world. 
Paul says in Acts chapter 26 that when he's being questioned, he's being on trial for his faith, he says, these things did not happen in a corner. It's not secretive. So why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to stay a Christian? Because Christianity was and is a publicly, historically grounded faith. And this is why an awareness you know, of church history and Christian history can be really helpful when you realize that we stand in a long line of thoughtful, faithful people who held to the same faith that we do. Uh, just practically, if you want to get farther into that, there's a podcast called Five Minutes in Church History with a guy named Stephen Nichols that you could listen to. Five Minutes in Church History it might be a helpful place to start if you just want five minutes at a time. And they really are only five minutes long. Some of us, that's all you can handle of history. And it's like, yep, that's it, five minutes. It's, it's a good way to go. But more than just big picture history, Paul begins to talk about Timothy's personal history, his own Christian community, those who poured into him. In verse 2, Paul addresses Timothy as his beloved child. Now, Paul was not Timothy's dad. We don't know much about Timothy's biological father. All we know is that his father was a Greek and his mother was Jewish. But when we first meet Timothy, uh, it's in the book of Acts chapter 16. It's in the city of Lystra where you find that Timothy's a well-respected young man by the Christian community there, a small band of Christians who are there. Timothy is well-respected amongst them. And so Paul asks Timothy to become his traveling companion, to come with him and his little band of Christian missionaries uh, on, on his journey, and Timothy joins him. In fact, Timothy is so dedicated to the task that because the Jewish community in the surrounding cities would have known that Timothy was multiracial, that his father was a Greek, he chose to be circumcised as a young adult man so as to not be a stumbling block to the Jews that they were going to minister among. I mean, that is like dedication, right? I would be tempted to just lie about it, you know? How are they going to know, you know? But the guy's got integrity, so you've got to give him that, you know? But seriously, Paul, later he will tell the Philippians of Timothy that he has no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And you start to catch a glimpse of how Paul feels about Timothy. He doesn't call him his associate or his disciple or his mentee or his student. He calls him his son. This was a deeply affectionate relationship for Paul. This is not just business for him. He says in verses 3 and 4, I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I mean, do you hear the emotion in these verses for Paul? He reminds Timothy of their deep friendship and also of others who have invested in him, his, his faith heritage received from his mama and his grandma. Verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Have you, have you ever had, do you have people like this in your life? A mentor. Maybe it was a mom. Maybe a grandma. Someone who had a sincere faith. They were not fake. They were the real deal. And they taught you the things of God. Why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to stay a Christian when it's really hard? 
because of people like this. This kind of generational faith impact is a real gift. Moms and dads, what you do in your homes with your kids is not small potatoes. You're raising little Timothys right now who God may be preparing for a Paul one day. Making disciples starts in the home, and so the little things that you do really are big things. Praying for your kids, praying with your kids, reading scripture with them, listening to their questions, and most of all, living out a sincere faith in your day-to-day interactions. But Paul will go even one level of history deeper for Timothy to God's own work in Timothy's life. He says in verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to stay a Christian? Because of the work of God that he's done in your very own soul. Don't forget about that, Paul will say. God gave you his spirit. He stepped into your life and gave you power to live for him. He gave you love to serve others. He gave you self-control to endure life. And he gave you a gift. He gave you a spiritual passion that is directly suited to you. And yet apparently that is something that can languish or lie dormant if you don't fan it into flame. So it seems like uh, every time we invite people over to our house, we have a smallish house, and so if we invite people over like a group, we usually do a fire in our backyard. We have a fire pit, do a bonfire. So whether it's our small group, or can't say that anymore, uh, whether it's our grow group or um, you know, youth events that we've had over at our house, whenever we have a fire, it uncannily always seems to rain the day before. And so I've had to try to, you know, like, every time now, figure out how to start and keep a fire going that has damp wood. And what I've learned is if you can keep some air to the flame, like don't try this at home, but I did and it was awesome. A leaf blower works awesome for this, like a gas blower and you just crank it up and let it rip on the coals. Uh, It's great. Now between myself and some other guys in our small group, we totally set fire to our yard one time, my grass and moss finally grew back after two years of lying, lying dormant. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, and it almost doesn't matter the conditions that the wood is in. If you can keep air on it, it's not going to go out. It's going to burn. So I think the challenge is, are you keeping air on your spiritual passions? Or are you letting them lie dormant and just kind of dwindle away into embers? Some of you have an amazing passion and a gift for teaching or for sharing Christ with others, for being hospitable, for visiting the lonely or the sick, for helping organize or administrate things. Whatever it might be, are you exercising those gifts? Are you keeping air on them through prayer and through using them? Are you teaching in a kid's class? Are you inviting your neighbors over? Are you visiting or contacting those who are sick or who are lonely? Are you looking to start a Bible study in your neighborhood or in your workplace? Are you eagerly offering your gifts of organization to places where you see disorganization? Don't let your gifts and your passions dwindle, but by prayer and exercise, use the gift that God has given you. That's part of, part of why you'd want to be a Christian and stay a Christian. God's worked in your life and he's given you a gift that you feel so alive when you use. So this is Paul's first reason to Timothy and to us why we should not be ashamed of Christ. First, Remember our history. And he means that big picture. 
and personal through the investment of others and then deeply personal through the work of God in your life. But second, he'll say, remember not just our history, but remember our message. Remember our message. Paul's most direct in this section of the letter. Uh, Verse eight, he says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, Paul's not inviting Timothy or us to suffer just to suffer or to suffer for being idiots, but to suffer for something, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Why should we not be ashamed? Because the message that we believe is truly beautiful and overwhelmingly wonderful. So as Paul's telling Timothy to not be ashamed, he's going to tell him this message again in what is you know, like the longest run-on sentence ever. Sorry, English teachers, but Paul just loves a run-on sentence, so get used to it. Um, He tells him, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So why is this such a great message or whatever? It's because he says, God did not love us and save us because of our works or even because he was obligated to, but because of his own purpose and grace, it says. He chose you. He set his love on us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Long before you thought about God or noticed him, he noticed you. And he set his love on you in Christ. And that's all a a pure gift. And I think that's truly the deepest form of love. When you love, not necessarily what you find in someone else, but because you choose to love. You choose to love. So let's say, you know, that you're dating someone, you know, and along the way, you take the risky step of being the first one to say to the other, I love you. And the other person, much to your surprise, responds by asking you, why? Why do you love me? I'm not saying I know this from personal experience or anything, but it does kind of put you in a weird spot. Like, what was I supposed to say? I mean, what is the hypothetical person in my example supposed to say? Because if you say, well, I love you, you know, because you're so good looking or, you know, you're just fun to be around. Uh, I just like you. You know, you're great. And that might appeal to the person's sense of pride. But if they're smart, they'll wonder, well, what about one day when I'm not as pretty as I am right now? Or, or, or what about when I'm sad or depressed or angry or sick? Will you love me then? And what, I, what you really want to hear, what you really want to hear from someone else, and the truest answer of love is just this. I love you because I love you. I love you because I choose you. God saved us and called us not because of anything we had going for us. He loves you just because he loves you, because he chose you, because of his own purpose and grace before the ages began, Paul says. And this isn't just like an abstract promise of love. Words, 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 words. He said God manifested. He showed his love. In verse 10, it says his own purpose and grace has been manifested 
through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So God didn't just like serenade us with love songs from heaven. He appeared in Christ through his appearing, through his incarnation, his birth as one of us. He abolished death by his death. He brought us life by his resurrection. This is the Christian gospel, and it is utterly unique amongst religions in this way, that Christians don't love God in order to get God to love us and bless us and save us. We love God because in Christ he already loved us and blessed us and saved us before we lifted a finger. Paul wants to underscore this to Timothy in his last words. Uh, You know, I didn't know uh, this morning that Julia was going to share what she did about her interactions with her Buddhist friend, but um, I did look up the last words of the Buddha, and I, I quote these respectfully, but I just quote it to show that the Christian message really is different. His last words were this, Behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. Work hard to gain your own salvation. It's just different. The Christian gospel says we can't ultimately save ourselves or prove ourselves or fix ourselves, though we've tried a million different ways. God in love has done what we could not do, taking away our sin and our guilt upon himself so that we could be saved in every way. Why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to stay a Christian? There's just no other love like this. No other message like this one. Paul says of it, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Paul says it's because he's a herald of this message that he suffers as he does, and he expects the same to happen for Timothy and for us. Later in the book, he'll write, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For Paul, this was part of the basic package of Christianity. In Philippians 1, his other, another letter of his, he writes, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Jesus anticipated this when he warned his first disciples in John 15. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So there's apparently something about the Christian message that really can deeply offend. So Paul's being realistic when he says, Proclaiming this message to others will involve, the very least, some social misunderstanding or exclusion, but perhaps much worse if you embark as a herald of this message. And while you might think, wait, I thought he was trying to keep me from being ashamed of my faith. I don't know that he's helping. He's one step ahead. He'll go on to say, even though he's persecuted for it, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I'm still not ashamed of being a Christian, Paul says, because I know who I've believed in. His track record is such that I'm able to entrust him with whatever the outcome might be. And Paul's not writing this, remember, from like the safety, the relative safety of a pulpit. He's writing this from the dismal prospect of the gallows. He's not just blowing hot air. He's staring down his own execution for this. And just makes you wonder, what enables a man to die like this? What enables a man to keep his faith when it would be so much easier to recant and to walk away? It's because he remembers the message, the message of the gospel, a message of love. He knows who he believed in, 
a God of love who gave himself to death for us. So remember our history. Remember our message. And then last, remember our mission. Verses 13 and 14. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. If we want to not be ashamed of our faith, then he says the church must keep focused to our mission, which is to faithfully preserve and pass on the truth of the gospel to others. This is what he means by follow the pattern of sound words. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is imagery of a soldier guarding a treasure such that it's not lost or damaged, but is preserved. Like let's say if you were entrusted to take the Mona Mona Lisa out from the Louvre for an exhibit, which has only happened I think twice in the last 100 years. But let's say that as you were entrusted to take out this famous painting and uh, set it up for the exhibit, that you decided it needed a little flair. Let's be honest, it's kind of a boring painting. So what if we added, you know, a a mustache? I think it needs some some polka dots on the dress. That would really help flare things up. Maybe a floral border around something, you know. Uh, I don't know what happens to you in France if you do that, but it's probably really bad, you know. What happens if we neglect faithfully transmitting the gospel message? What happens if we no longer keep the gospel front and center in our thinking, in our teaching, in our living as a church? When one generation assumes the gospel that we all know this, do we really need to focus on it so much? Do you really have to preach the same thing over and over every week? When one generation assumes the gospel, the next generation may forget it or lose it altogether. So if the, church, if the church becomes then in the next generation mostly or only about being good and morally upright, then some bad stuff starts to creep in. Well, what happens if I fail? What will God do to me then? Or what about those who have been very, very bad? What hope is there for them? Or if the church becomes primarily or only about doing social good, What ultimate hope is there for the world when we clearly cannot right all wrongs or overcome all injustice or when we find injustice in our own ranks? Or if the church is mostly about having good doctrine, what happens when we know all the answers and we're proud of it? Or if our church is primarily or only about getting people to convert, what happens if very few people accept our message and revival just doesn't happen? What if uh, church is only primarily about creating strong, healthy families? What about those who come from irreparably broken homes? Or if church is mostly about having meaningful community, what happens when that community lets you down or betrays you or moves away to some other place? And all these things, don't hear me, saying that they're bad because they're not. They're good and right and wonderful things, but they cannot be front and center. I'll close with a helpful word, I think, from the late Tim Keller, who wrote this in one of his last published works. He says, why does the church constantly fall into temptation to self-righteousness, dominance, and exclusion? Why does it fail to reproduce the early church's social project? Because it loses its grip on the very core of its faith. When we lapse back into thinking that we're saved by our moral efforts, we become enmeshed in both pride and fear. Pride because we may think God and the world owe us a claim. Fear because we can never be sure we've truly lived good enough lives. 
And so when we lose the existential or the personal or the doctrinal grasp on the truth that we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, because of Christ alone, we not only lose our joy and fall into fear, but also our graciousness and fall into pride. The world, of course, is quick, too quick to find fault with the church and thus justify its dismissal of the gospel message, and yet it is quite right to do so. If the church continually moves towards dominance and control rather than love and service, it shows that it doesn't really believe the gospel it preaches. And if the church doesn't believe the gospel, why should the world? If we are to keep our bearings and not become ashamed of our faith in the next generation, we must must keep faithfully transmitting the gospel as the main thing. Christ knew this would be a challenge. And so on the night before the cross, Christ asked his disciples to remember, to never forget his body broken, his blood shed. This was the practice that he left to the church to remember. How can you not be ashamed of your faith? Why would you want to be a Christian? Why would you want to stay a Christian? Because you have a Savior who is not ashamed to go to the cross for you. He despised the shame, considered it joy, and broke his body and had his blood spilled for us. That's why I want to be a Christian.